Hello, everybody. In this week's episode, we talk with Cecilia Laneda Briones. Cecilia lived through hyperinflation in Argentina and studied both in Argentina and in the UK. After that, she worked in the public sector and now teaches in London. We talk about the history of economics, about the Indo-American refugee and migrant organization, and her research on comparing countries and their genies. Next to that, we discuss decon, decolonizing economics, and what the differences are between economic education in Argentina and the UK. Enjoy this week's episode. Thank you for rethinking with us. Hey Cecilia, thank you so much for uh, being here. How are you? I am good. Um, yeah, it's good because it's sunny today. So you know that it's you know in the UK that's a precious thing. So uh, <laughs> you know it it always makes your day a little bit better. <laughs> so what are you most excited about right now? You know, actually, I don't know if I, the word is excited, but I'm like quite looking forward to um, university year starting it hasn't started yet here in the UK so I know it's going to be a tough year uh, I know it's, it's going to be a difficult year uh, but I am actually yeah I wouldn't say excited but you know anxious in a good way to see um, how things are going to be and um, yeah what's going to happen because you teach at where do you where do you teach in the UK so I teach at the University of Warwick in uh, the economics department, uh, obviously, uh, I teach mainly economic history and uh, macroeconomics. So, yeah, classes start in a couple of weeks uh, or in a week and a half, actually. And um, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting year. So, so what do you teach? What kind of courses uh, do you do you like to teach? Well, what I like to teach and what I teach are, I actually at the moment are the same thing that has happened in the past necessarily but at the moment uh i teach as i was at you know economic history so at work um there's compulsory economic history for first year undergraduate students uh so it's i don't remember exactly the name of it but it's i think it's a world world history or something along those lines but it's economic history uh and um yeah compulsory first year so i do uh, seminars in that uh, and then I have a third year module called Topics in Economic History, uh, which is a, you know, an elective course, so it's not compulsory. Uh, it's, it's just started. It's a new course. Um, I started teaching last year in September 2019 at work. So I started doing that course. Uh, so I really, really like that. It's, yeah. It's the best <laughs> in terms of teaching for me. Uh, I don't know if, you know, students will necessarily think that, but I really, really enjoy it. And um, I also teach macroeconomics, um, which I, I do seminars mainly of that. Of, I get the compulsory first year course. So macroeconomics one. And then we also teach macroeconomics for um, PPE. So politics, philosophy and economics students uh, that take economics obviously as well that's part of their degree so I teach them and that's also quite 
macro and that's also quite cool i like that because it has um they're interesting to you know they have a different view than purely economists on on macro even if it's the same macro really that we teach but it's it's good to have a variety of students to teach to that's interesting so is there a difference between what what are the differences between teaching macro to just economic students or ppe students well i think they at work, they both set of students ask really, really interesting questions. Uh, but what I like about the PPE students uh, is that they have this view and they have this knowledge, right? Because obviously they, they, you know, they study politics, for example. So they try to dig in the political economy of things in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they try to understand more how you know economic decisions can be coordinated with political decisions so it's a different type of question that me uh i i find slightly more interesting it's a personal it's a thing you know it's 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 not better or worse in any way shape or form uh i like teaching macro so i like anyone that comes to me with questions about it uh but this idea of thinking beyond just the economic you know, outlook and just, you know, just the economic implications of certain decisions, but trying to think about the politics and the effects for society. Uh, it's something that I am interested in personally. So when I can discuss that with students, I like it more. <laughs> yeah, it's not a preference. It's just, you know, what interests me as well, let's say. Mm. And next to teaching, do you also do research? I do research, uh, yes, uh, and in economic history mainly, um, and not your typical economic history either, uh, as you would uh, mainstream economic history, I guess, uh, which is, uh, you know, mainly kind of economics with a very long run perspective, in my view, uh, which is really interesting and very important. But I'd like to do again some research that doesn't necessarily put all these different variables in an econometrics model. Uh, so I do very, um, very different things, let's say. Um, like what? And, and like what? Yeah, I know, I know, I know that's the follow-up question, right? So uh, <laughs> no, my, my, my interest in it is basically the study of the production and use of st economic statistics. So the relationship between national statistical agencies, for example, like the ONS in the UK, the Office for National Statistics, uh, and how do at different points in time start producing certain indicators like GDP, you know, your, your, your usual suspects, GDP, um, the CPI, et cetera. And how, how do they design them, the methodology and how that responds to the uses that, that they wanna give that to that indicator and, you know, how then that indicator is used to design policy or just to kind of analyze the economy. Interesting. Okay. So how did you get into history of economics? Why did it interest you so much? Well, so I was studying um, as an undergrad, I was studying, so I, I have a degree and undergraduate degree in economics, but I also have an under degree in, undergraduate degree in sociology. So um, I was studying both 
um, degrees at the same time. And uh, why are you laughing? <laughs> it's ambitious. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I was studying both at the same time and I was taking this um, history course um, in, in the sociology, now for my sociology degree, it was an Argentine history course. And uh, they were, you know, there was a really, really good paper that um, was looking at the relationship between, um, you know, you know, how the economy fluctuated and different policies and the different parties that were, you know, taking these policies. So a very, yeah, a, it's, I, I, it's, it's an, it's, I don't know if it's in English, but it's like the most interesting paper I've ever read. Or I don't know if it's the most, but it's, you know, the one that kind of was the turning point for me because it, uh, you know, it was everything that I was looking for in terms of, of me studying these two degrees separately, right? Because I thought, you know, either of them on their own was not enough in terms of what I, what, how I wanted to understand the world or what I thought I, you know, how I could understand the world. And this paper was just combining, right? An economic analysis and historical, obviously. Uh, and um, so Argentina in the 50s, 60s, uh, this was the early 2000s that I read it, and the relationship between what was happening in economic terms and, you know, and, and policy decisions and the different parties and, and the effects that that had on unemployment and people's lives and blah, blah, blah. So I thought, oh, that's what I really like. This is what I want to do. And I've always liked history, right? So it was since, you know, I can remember. So, um, so yeah, so it was that paper that, you know, that, that got me thinking that economic history was a thing uh, and it could be done. And I was like, oh, this is what I want to study. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's the economic history interest. And then I guess that the other thing that it's also important is inflation. In Argentina, inflation has always been an issue since I will, since, oh, oh not always, but always for in my lifetime. Uh, like, you know, hyperinflation. I was, you know, a child of the hyperinflation episodes of 89, 91. And, um, and inflation is this huge thing. And, and, you know, and yeah, so I needed to understand, I still don't understand, but I still needed to feel like, you know, there's one of those things that you need to understand. Something that's so kind of, you know, characteristic of, of, of where you live in and it shapes people's lives you know, makes their decisions, you know, about, you know, buying things now rather than tomorrow. And, you know, yeah, inflation. <laughs> so what was it like to live in hyperinflation? Because you learn about it in economics, but you never really think about what it's like to actually live or have to deal with that. Like, what are things that you have to think about? Well, I was little in, you know, 89, 91. So it's, it's more of, memories that I have than, um, you know, I, 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 yeah, I guess that, you know, my mom, my dad, my grandparents would have been able to tell you a bit better about that. But my, but um, my memory was like, of you know, first of all, if you, if you needed money, you carry around loads of, you know, notes, but bills, you know, pieces of paper that were worth less and less. And every time that I went to buy sweets and things like that, I must have, I was, 89, 90, 91, I must have been like, yeah, seven and uh, seven, eight. And um, 
you know, going to the shop to buy cookies and sweets and candy and stuff. It was just first, not, not something that happened very often. And every time that I went, it was just like, you know, I needed more money. And I was like, how is this possible? Right. I was here two or three days ago. Um, you know, and, and people were just, you know, spending the money as soon as they, you know, as, 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 as they got paid because you didn't know, you know, if, if, if you kept that money in your pocket, let's say, how much you would have been able to buy two weeks after that, three weeks after that. So it's like, it's the memories, right? I, I don't, you know, I, I think I was lucky enough not to have to be worried <laughs> about spending that money and bringing up three kids. But, um, but yeah, it's so those things that it's just, and then we moved to the US um, in the middle of the hyperinflation episode because um, my mom went to do her PhD and things were different, right? So it's not like you, 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 you know, inflation was there. It was a thing, right? It was some, it was a contrast. You know, that, those things that you experience, right? This idea of, you know, going to the shops and buying candy and it was just like, okay, you know, you don't need more and more coins and notes mm -hmm. and stuff, you know, it was, it was just a stability that, that, that was, it was the shock, I guess, because we left in the, in the middle of, 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 of the issue, you know, of, of the hyperinflation episodes. So I think it's that contrast that made it, you know, a thing for me. You know, oh. Okay. So that is what got you into economics then? Or? I, I guess that that's sort of, it was in the back of my head for a very long time, right? How, how these things work and trying to understand how these things are possible. Um, you know, because it was, you know, it was within days that I was living in a different place and, and, and things were completely different, right? So, yeah. It, just, it made it interesting, you know, to, to say, okay, how, do, how does the economy, I, at that time, obviously, I didn't know anything about the economy or what the economy was. Uh, but, you know, when, when you grow up and then you start thinking, you know, start thinking and, you know, about these things, you're like, oh, okay, so this is economics. Uh, you know, what else, can, what, what can economics teach us, let's say? So did you then study uh, in the U.S. or did you go back to... No, no, no. I, we were in the U.S. for only less than three years. Um, so then we, when we went back to Argentina. Argentina was a different place uh, in the 90s or in the mid-90s. Um, but yeah, so then, you know, I studied in, in, in Argentina, my undergrad. Yes. And how, uh, how was that? Because... Did you have, did you read like uh, Spanish research? Did you read research from other countries? How, how did that work when you were studying? Did you have, was it very different than now as you're teaching in the UK? Is it like, was it a very different way of university? So university, yeah, totally, totally different. Uh, I can only speak for if you want, if, if, you, if we're thinking of a comparison, right? I can only speak for economics, because uh, yeah, that's what I that's what I learned back home in Argentina, and and that's what I teach, and what I'm in touch with here, right? So, uh, so in that regard, 
it's it's quite different or i feel it that it's i feel that it's quite different uh, basically because we um back home had this very long degree that lasted around five and a half years uh the undergraduate um yes it's long uh and it was full of or it was mainly not at my university at least um compulsory modules compulsory courses right so i think it was around 30 it was 33 or 35 modules that i had to take right credits i guess it would be um and let's say if they were 35 33 were compulsory right so so the, the so i took loads of different courses that what i see my students now take is elective were compulsory, right? So I had development economics, international economics, uh, obviously econometrics and all of that, economic history, Argentine economic history, world economic history, history of economic thought, uh, macro, micro, one, two, all of that. Um, I don't know, finance, all those things I had to take, right? And sit and pass, uh, which, was tedious if you didn't like the modules, obviously, but it was great in the sense that I think I learned a lot. Uh, I learned a lot of stuff that obviously was translated into Spanish because uh, I went to a public university and uh, you know they couldn't teach anything that was in English, right? So um, I studied macro and I taught macro back home with you know textbooks that were translated mainly so Blanchard right so how did that affect your education that everything had to be translated from in, uh, English to Spanish I guess that it's it, it, it sort of a narrower that than what I what I think students get here right because everything every economics is it's it's I'm not saying it, not, no content is produced in other languages but the content that inverted commas matters is produced in English. That's my hunch, right? Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, I mean, there's a lot of, of research and things being written in Spanish. I know this because I have loads of colleagues that, that work, uh, that are economists and, and, and produce things in Spanish, right? But, you know, the, you, and, and I've read a lot of that and that was great because also there's a lot of heterodox. Uh, economics being written in Spanish uh, or maybe that's just the crowd that I hang out with and that's my friends of today and the stuff that I found interesting to read but um, but I think you know in terms of of what inverted commas counts if you want to you know leave Argentina and um, and study elsewhere uh, you only get to read what's being translated, right? So, so you're sort of, it's, 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 yeah, you're sort of kind of, your hands are tied if you don't know, you, you know, any other language basically, I think. But I don't, yeah, I'm assuming that doesn't just happen back home, right? Um, but so how did you find that out? How did you figure out that there was a lot of things that you were missing because not everything was translated in Spanish? I remember, uh, so it was towards the end of my degree. Uh, I, I didn't find out then, but I remember this being kind of like 
eye-opening and I was a development economics course and um, we had our compulsory readings, right? That were obviously again, all in Spanish. And there was, because it was the end, it was towards the end, that course, that module, towards the end of the degree, um, that they sort of started, you know, putting non-compulsory readings in English or mentioning them. And, uh, and I remember that's the first time I came across Asimoglu, Johnson and Robinson, because it was, you know, the beginning again, early 2000s. So they were starting with, with, with their, um, more, you know, their, their theory about institutions and all of that. And um, our, you know, the lecturer then was like, well, you know, there's new research coming out in development economics, development economics seems to be kind of taking this into consideration. And he sort of main, mentioned, right, the institutional kind of, the good and bad institutions of Asimoglu, Johnson and Robinson. And I was like, wow, you know, opinions aside, this is like, really, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening that, you know, we are not, they're not telling us, right? Or we're not, we can't find out because, you know, I, um, that meant though, on the upside that I was reading a lot of the classics, right? So we were reading a lot of Keynes and we were reading Smith and we were reading Ricardo and we were reading Marx, stuff that here, it's, I find it that it's much harder. To, to get across, to come across and like, the, you know, the raw pure form of actually reading the wealth of nations and, you know, the general theory and things like that. So I guess it's that fine balance of, of what, you know, because obviously those things are tra translated in Spanish, right? Or were at least maybe, you know, I'm pretty sure now Asimoglu Johnson and Robinson is translated, but in the early 2000s, because it had just come out, it wasn't. And, um, so yeah, that was sort of when I said, okay, so there's all these things that are, I, you know, you know this, but it's just when, when they actually tell you, this is, you know, this is like, you know, what's being discussed now, um, that you say, okay, that, you know, yeah, we're missing a lot. Or, or not a lot. I don't know if, you know, Samoglu Johnson and Robinson is a lot, but you are, you know, uh, you're you're maybe lagging behind, let's say. So what happened then after you found out, after you graduated, where did you go? Did you stay in Argentina or? I did uh, for a while. Uh, so when I, I didn't, I, you know, I was doing two degrees, I didn't finish them at the same time. I finished economics first. So I got a job as an economist. Um, I got a couple, but the one that I, that I, you know, successive jobs, the one that I really, really like is I was in a research institute and I was like a research assistant. Uh, um, and that was great because it was a heterodox, it is, it still exists, a heterodox um, research um, institute that had this, you know, everything I wanted in terms of having this as I mentioned before, this, this way of looking at the economy, that's not just about, you know, the economy, but it's about politics and it's about society and, you know, it's about gender differentials. And, you know, even though most of us were economists, inverted commas, uh, or had this economics training, 
it was a group of people, small group of people, still is a small group of people, uh, that that wanted to, you know, understand things in a much more comprehensive, holistic way, let's say, rather than just okay, so this is the economy, this is this is, you know, these are the economic effects done. Uh, so I was there for a couple of years. Um doing economic history basically um or working on a project that you know is clearly i didn't it didn't seem like it then but it was clearly you know an economic history project uh you know argentina trying to look at more of a yeah development um, growth um but yeah in the long run uh and um yeah and that got you know there i could you know i started reading other things as well, um, which helped me in terms of kind of growth, right? Personal growth and trying to, you know, trying to understand things in this more kind of comprehensive way that, I, that, I've, that I've always looked for, if that makes sense. So then how did you get from there to the UK? Because now you're teaching in the UK. So yeah. how did you... How did that happen? <laughs> How did that happen? Well, uh, I wanted to continue my studies, and uh, at some point during my 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 undergraduate degree, someone had mentioned. I knew by then that I liked economic history, and uh, and I knew by then that I wanted to do to be in academia. Right? I was already teaching at uni, and um, I was you know, working at a research institute, so I knew that 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 was the path. And uh, I, you know, I obviously wanted to continue studying and, uh, and I wanted to move abroad for a while. I wanted to study abroad, right? And um, someone had mentioned that the LSE, the London School of Economics here in the UK had, you know, an economic history department that it was really good. And, you know, there was this really good economic historian that um, specializes in Argentina. And I was like, okay, so that's where I want to go. I wanted to, you know, I, yeah. So I, I applied for an MSc in the economic history department at the LSE and uh, got in, got funded, which was also quite crucial because otherwise it would have been impossible. And, um, and I also knew that I wanted to do a PhD, right? So it was highly, I knew that when I left for the MSc, it was highly likely that I was going to stay. Not necessarily at the LSC, though that's what I wanted because it was, you know, an economic history PhD. But, um, but I thought, okay, you know, this is going to be more than a year, for, hopefully. And that was 12 years ago. <laughs> I'm still here, which is not exactly what I expected uh, back then, but but it's good. So how was it to change from Argentina and from that education system to the UK? Were there big differences? There were. Obviously, you know, an undergrad and an MSc are, are very different things anywhere, right? So regardless of where you are. Um, but, you know, I was used to studying a lot and, um, and I liked it, obviously. Uh, but things were very different when I came here. Uh, this idea of, you know, the independent study, 
you know, you just didn't go to class and learned a lot, apart from obviously reading, right? But uh, one of the first things that struck me here in the UK is the amount of, of independent study that's expected of you. Why, why do I mean, I used to go to class for at least six hours per module, macro, micro, all of those. Here, you know, it's our students get three hours a week. And at work, for example, two lecture hours, one seminar. In Argentina, in macro, I had six hours a week of, you know, classes, lecture and, and seminar and all of that, which meant that, it, obviously, you know, I was at uni a lot. Uh, but then, you know, that sort of counterbalanced the independent study in a way. Uh, and this was a lot of me studying and reading on my own, which was... Not that difficult, but it was different. And then the types of assessments, you know, the, the assessment, the way uh, students are assessed here in the UK, at least, um, it's quite different. Uh, you know, essays, essays, you do a lot of essays here, which is, I think it's great, actually. Um, I've learned a lot. It was hard because I, I, you know, I was obviously used to writing, but the, the idea of doing essays and you know putting your argument forward, uh, or some kind of argument forward, it was. I wasn't that used to doing that at uni, and I think that's great actually. It's a really important thing, you know, you being able to to build an argument, even if it's not your argument, right? But putting forward an idea in a way that you know you justify why you're saying this and why you're saying that. Um, so I thought, you know, that was, apart from the fact that obviously, you know, writing in English was not something that I was really used to. So, you know, language barriers aside, um, that was, I think that's, you know, if you ask me what I learned during the masters is to do an essay, <laughs> which, is, which is actually really important, I think. And I wish they taught, they taught it in Argentina you know, from earlier on. So that's something that at universities in Argentina could learn from the UK? I think so. Uh, it's, it's that type of assessment, right? I, the, the, uh, our, uh, universities in Argentina do many other really good things. Um, but I think, you know, if, if that type of assessment, it's not as common. As so what, what can the UK universities learn from Argentina then, the other way around? I guess that, you know, for me, it was really crucial to have um, all these other compulsory courses that gave you a much broader notion of what economics is. You don't see that in the UK or? I, I mean, as I, I, from what I see, you know, uh, you know, you have obviously your, your, your compulsory micro, macro, and, you know, econometric stats. But then, you know, it's great to have choices. Don't get me wrong. It's really good to have choices. But I think, you know, having, maybe it's a matter of having more courses, right? Which is, it's a different type of, you know, it's a different type of thing, right? Maybe it's re rethinking the degrees uh, in a different way, but you know, the fact that I got to learn not just economic history, right, which is obviously I'm biased towards that, but, you know, history of, you know, that 
they had a history of economic thought that was compulsory, development economics, which was compulsory, international economics, which was compulsory, uh, all those things, you know. I thought that was great. I think, you know, I, I, again, five and a half years, right, against three, which is also, that's why I mean, you know, you, you, you have more time to have compulsory courses because you're in there for longer, uh, much longer, double the time potentially. Uh, so obviously, you know, it's a very different thing, but I do think that having more compulsory courses is something that's controversial potentially, but re really important from my experience again. So uh, a little bit different, but I guess on the same path is how, uh, what do you think students miss in their education? And what, what are lessons that you wish every student knew? Well, uh, this is quite biased. Uh, the, the, I mean, the answer that I have to that is quite biased towards my research interest, right? Which is, and I, I, this is, I think, you know, regardless of, of my experience here in the UK and my experience in Argentina, uh, is that um, economic students, uh, you know, or economists more broadly, we use numbers a lot, right? Um, we cannot not know about, you know, certain things. And um, one of them are, you know, the use of statistics. Now I'm not talking about statistical methods, right? But the use of statistics. Uh, and I think we economists or most economists, right? Um, and most economic students, and that's something that I think, you know, they really don't get top um, uh, from my experience anywhere or you know very little if you want not anywhere but very little is that to be skeptical about numbers right so as I said to you before I studied you know the, the production and use of public figures right GDP CPI and all of that right and uh, we are taught to look at the you know to look at them more or less at face value right I think this is slightly changing, so I'm happy about this. Uh, but rather, you know, trying to, I think what economic students are missing, and I guess that's not just economics, I think, for example, sociology students as well, trying to understand where these numbers come from, right? These numbers are produced for a reason, they're not objective. You know, there's a definition behind them. So, in order, to, I'm not saying not use numbers, I'm just saying when you use numbers, try to look at them more critically. And if you want, it's, it's, it's about awareness, right? Not, not as in criticizing numbers, but having a critical approach to public, publicly generated figures, at least. All of them, you know, uh, but definitely the ones generated by, by, by governments. Okay. So a little bit of a different topic, but um, you work with the IR, IRMO London, the Indo-American Refugee and Migrant Organization. What do you do? What is the organization about? So, yeah, so IRMO, IRMO uh, is, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's what they call it. So I say the same, but IRMO sounds, sounds good actually. Uh, so, as you said, in the Indo it stands for Indo-American Refugee and Migrant Organization. It's a, it's a charity that um, 
helps or provides services to recently arrived to the UK Latin American migrants, uh, which is, yeah, which they tend to come through. Um, you know, loads of us Latin Americans have um, dual citizenship. Uh, so because, you know, some of us are grandparents or parents, you know, were born in Spain or in, in uh, Italy or um, Portugal, and generally in the case of Brazilians, um, we can have that dual citizenship that allows us obviously to be in the EU. Uh, so a lot of people migrated from Latin America, right? Initially to obviously for language reasons, um, to Spain mainly. Um, and then eventually, you know, when things started not going great for Spain some time ago, moved to other parts and a lot of them move to the UK. Uh, and basically what we do is uh, that provide different types of services for, for the Latin American community. Here, it, I mean, it's obviously in UK, but we generally um, work with people living in London because it's just a matter of, of they're closer, right, to, to, to the premises. And, and we provide services along the, along the lines of, you know, welfare advice, immigration advice, we do English classes, we do um, classes for, because a lot of people work in the construction sector and here to do that in the UK, they need some a permit that they need to do a, an exam for. So we do courses, half in Spanish, half in English for people to prepare for, for those um, exams. Uh, English classes, did I say that? English classes and, you know, things like that um, to, you know, and help people basically settle That's here. Really, that's really great that you do that and that the organization's there. That's so nice. Did you have anything like that when you came there or did you kind of just jump in on your own? <laughs> no, so I, I, I joined Dear Mall not that long ago, actually, three years maybe. So I wasn't a service user of Irma um, because I guess that, I, you know, yeah. Uh, so I'm sort of kind of, I miss being around the Latin American community, um, let's say. Uh, or not that I hadn't been, there's loads of, you know, Latin Americans in, everywhere here, but uh, getting involved with the community in a different way um it's really really nice and um i guess that you know i have i wouldn't say that i have more time but i have time that i didn't have before when i was studying um and working arguably and um and now i just work so you know i have a bit more time to get involved in other things and uh and I think it almost, you know, does a great job. Loads of charities do a great job, but obviously I have a soft spot for my community, which is the Latin American community. And uh, so, yeah, it's good to, to be a part of, of the Irma family. That's great. So another project you also, I don't know how you relate to this project, but the Global Income Inequality Project? Yeah, so that is a project that I, I did sort of like a postdoc there. So I was a research fellow after I finished my PhD uh, for, I think it lasted for a year and a half. Um, it was a project uh, funded by the ESRC 
which is, um, I don't know, ex I wouldn't know exactly economic, I think it's Economic Social Research Council. Uh, it's a UK body that, you know, grants research, you know, provides grants to, to, to academia mainly. And uh, so it was, a, I think, a three or four year project I came in towards the end when I finished the PhD, which basically what we did there was try to, as the name says, estimate global income inequality on the basis though of historically to begin with, right? And on the basis of household budget surveys, uh, which is something that obviously it's not very easy to do up until the 1970s when all countries started more or less producing and in, um, household budget surveys. Right, we, we take them at face value and think they've been around for a while, but no, uh, they haven't. Uh, so basically what we did in that project was build a database of household budget surveys worldwide as, as much as we could, you know, because we were based in the UK, so that's not that easy. Um, from, from whenever they existed, let's say, uh, to the 1960s, 1970s, because then that, that they're much, either much, access to them is much easier since then, right? Since the 1960s, because they've become a regular thing, as I was saying. Uh, so we built a database with, with, you know, with whatever we could find. Uh, so it's a lot of archival work, which is great for an economic historian, because, you know, that's one of the things that we like to do. Uh, and then obviously on the basis of that, we, I'm simplifying this massively, right? Uh, we tried to, to generate genies for different, you know, on the basis of, of, of each household survey um, data. Uh, so yeah, for different parts of the world. And obviously this is, it's, it's, it's a great, very ambitious project. Um, and very, it's, it was, yeah difficult because again we were based here right in the UK so it's not like we had the money to travel around the world doing you know archival research um, so um, but yeah and on the basis of that we tried as I said G uh, estimate genies and tried to see kind of what happened through time it depends Right, because we, we have in, in you know we haven't had the chance yet to do a massively kind of global uh, analysis, right? Because it's very very difficult uh, to to do that because you know you have genies for different times of the world or surveys actually, and then genies uh, at different different points in time for different groups of people in a country, right? So, for example. Latin America, most of the surveys that you have um, for the you know 1920s, 1930s, 1940s are household budget surveys of working class uh, households, right? Because that's what they surveyed at the time. So it's very difficult to do, you know, a, a, an Argentina genie, a Brazil genie, uh, a Chile genie on the basis of just data for the working class, right? Because you would expect that, you know, those genies, not only they're not really representative of the whole country, but you would expect the working class not to not be so unequal relatively. 
relatively, right? That doesn't happen, but at least at, at the very beginning, right? 1910s, 1920s. So, so we're still struggling with the methodology, you know, of how to kind of extrapolate, if you want, this data that we have, which in many cases, or at least at the beginning, it's very specific to, to groups to be able to say something that's um, meaningful for a country, meaningful for a region, meaningful for a time period. I don't know if, if, if that makes sense. It does. It sounds very, uh, very hard to do because there are so many factors to, like, to factor into that. Because how do you get the data from everywhere if you can't go there? Like, well, yeah, well, the, the, yeah, that was a very, that was the first big, 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 big challenge. Uh, and that is why we're still struggling with actually producing output on this is because throughout the lifetime of the project, the funding lifetime of the project, if you want, uh, we spend most of our time uh, looking for, for these reports. Uh, what we did, uh, basically, we found what we could through interlibrary loans. So we knew that, you know, these, they're mainly um, official reports, right? Because these household surveys in their majority, but not all of them were, were done by the national statistical agencies in each country or some kind of public entity, right? A ministry of some sort. So there are publications that exist in different parts, you know, that, and that, you know, libraries in different parts of the world hold of, of these reports. So it wasn't that difficult to find them in that sense. Uh, but obviously what becomes really difficult is that you don't have the microdata, right? Because you just have the report that has the aggregate breakdown of, you know, the, let's say 10,000 households that were surveyed by, I don't know, income bands. So you uh, just, right? So you don't have the microdata, you have the chart. Mm. And obviously just that chart limits the extent of your analysis. So that's one of the problems. And then you have obviously all these surveys are done methodologically wise, they're very different. Some of them were carried throughout a month, not just, you know, some of them were just the working class rather than society as a whole, but some of them, you know, not necessarily representative samples within the working class. Some of them took, I don't know, were done throughout a month. Some of them lasted for a year or six months or three. So then you have all these other kind of methodological design of the survey complications that you have to account for, right? That make this even more difficult than, than what we were discussing. How do you figure that out if all the methodologies that they used are different? How do you compare that? Well, we're in the process of that. <laughs> That's, it, no, it's, it's, no, it's difficult. It's really, really difficult because it's not just that then it just, it becomes not only about finding the survey and getting the data, you need to read properly, right? All the reports to be able to understand how each survey was carried out, right? So it's so, it's time consuming finding the data. It's time consuming reading loads of loads of loads of reports and trying to kind of see, you know, try to understand what happened from the methodological side to then be able to put, you know, systematize all that 
that's why we've decided to work on like, you know, that's why we haven't done anything global, right? Because if anything, we're trying to do stuff for a region or for a country or for a group of countries that have certain similarities in terms of, for example, the surveys that they carried out. So you need to kind of get your head around that before you do anything. <laughs> or, you know, that, that, that then is worth, you know, showing to, the, to, to other people, right? And discussing with other colleagues. So yeah, okay. it's a very much work in progress. Yeah, I get that. So what do you want to change in economics? If you could change something, what would you be like, this one? <laughs> oh, I, I guess that, I guess that my greatest concern uh, is, you know, it's about how pluralistic um, economics is in many ways. And, but let's stick to two, which I think are really, really important. Not the most important, but, uh, but for me are quite meaningful, let's say. Uh, one is, is pluralism regarding, you know, schools of thought and different ways of, you know, doing economics. Um, which is, I think, what, you know, rethinking economics or one of the things that rethinking economics tries to do. Uh, so I'm extremely happy that rethinking economics and other, you know, organizations exist, right? Uh, and especially, you know, that are student-led, if you want, uh, you know, that it's, it's, a, it's a reform that's being demanded from, from the start in terms of, you know, the start of your career, let's say. So that's like, that's one concern that I have. Uh, the other concern that I have uh, in terms of pluralism, right, is it's a gender thing. I think economics is a very much dominated, male dominated, um, white male dominated uh, discipline that um that yeah that you know that needs changing uh because because that you know economics is 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 something that determines people's lives everyday lives and if it's just mainly uh white male dominated right the worries of of, of the white male are very different than the worries of of the rest of society, basically. Uh, so, I you know I think, and and I think that's tied to a great extent to, to to the pluralism, you know, in terms of thought and and all the other things. You know, they're not completely independent things. They're things that are extremely linked. Uh, so those are my concerns. That was a question, right? What are my concerns? <laughs> or not what I would change or not how can I change how can we change this? Right? <laughs> because I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> well then I won't ask you. <laughs> no, but I think no, I think no, no let me actually I mean I think, you know, as I was saying, organizations like rethinking, there's other one other one that I'm involved in, um, which is DECON, diver developing 
decolonizing and diversifying economics, uh, which, you know, they, they, they're moving towards, that, that's the aim, right? More or less, uh, having a more pluralistic, heterodox, diverse uh, economics, right? So that's, that's a way forward for sure. Wow. <laughs> okay, so let's do a little lightning round with every person on the podcast. We do a little lightning round. So just say the first thing that pops up in your head. Okay. Okay. All right. What is a skill any economist should learn? Well, I, you know, this goes back. I, I don't want to sound repetitive, but I think a skill is, you know, being critical about numbers and, you know, looking at these public figures, uh, public numbers. In a, in a critical way, try to, trying to look beyond, you know, the increase in GDP and actually trying to understand how GDP was constructed to begin with and your unemployment or, you know, the CPI or whatever. I think that's, that's a crucial skill. Who do you admire or look up to in economics? Well, that is a very easy um, answer for me because that's my mentor uh, I it's not going to be someone that probably uh, is very well known uh, but his name is Ruben Lowolo he's an Argentine economist uh, he's the director of uh, the center the research center that I mentioned before where I worked before moving to the UK which is called the Centro Interdisciplinario para el Estudio de Políticas Públicas or CIEP uh, he is a brilliant heterodox economist um, that, yeah, that's, you know, he's my mentor. And uh, I think, you know, he, you know, we should be reading him much more, let's say. What is the question you want me to ask that I haven't asked you yet? That's, that's a difficult one, but I guess that, you know, you asked me about Irma, which I appreciate a lot. Uh, and it's always good to talk about Irma and Irma's course. Uh, but I guess we talked about it without you asking me directly about it, which is um, about decon, about um, decolonizing and diversifying economics, um, which, as I mentioned, is, you know, sort of a, another organization that championships courses like Rethinking does. Um, and uh, yeah. And yeah, so I would have, uh, I would, well, that's the question, you know, what do you do? What, what does Decon do, for example? So what do they do and what, how are you active with them? So um, what does Decon do? So Decon is basically, uh, you know, a group of, of, of people, of you know, mainly economists um, from different parts of the world uh, um, that the, the the aim, you know, is um, to you know get a more pluralistic curriculum, a more diversified curriculum, a decolonized curriculum in economics. Um, so Decon does, you know, like like rethinking in a way, organizes um, talks and uh, you know things like that, you know, blogs and it's 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 a very similar approach if you want in terms of of getting the word out there about scholars for example right that that are not well known in in the global north right so it tries to focus much more about what what theories and what individuals uh 
are being read, for example, in the global south, and um, you know, and, and tries to get the word out there about their existence. For example, that's one of the things that Decon does. So, what does a decolonized economics look like, according to you? That's a very difficult question, uh, and I, I don't think I have an answer to that. Uh, that you know that that makes that I I guess that you know. Um, you know, in the, in the Rethinking Festival, um, there was this panel uh, about decolonizing economics uh, uh, that, um, that I think was really interesting because I, well, yeah, really interesting because, you know, he had the, the, the views of three very different people from, you know, three different parts of the world, what decolonizing is. Uh, and I think that I mean, some answer it comes from there, and I think you know uh, that's worth listening to. Not to me talking in that one, but the other <laughs> the other panelists that were there. Uh, but it's just you know for me, if you want, it's, it's it's what you know the concerns. When you ask me about the concerns, you know it's a more pluralistic economics, if you want, that is not just about you know learning neoclassical economics that's produced by white male individuals in the global north. I, you know, if you wanted it in a nutshell, but I think it's, I know it's much more than that, but it could start there, a definition of decolonizing economics. So where can people find uh, the things that you are most enthusiastic about if they want to learn more? Uh, I guess that, uh, the you know works um work has a staff the, the department has a staff website um so if if, if you know if you i i don't know the exact kind of www address to it uh but uh you know in my my let's say vertical is personal page within the department and i on twitter though not very active but um i guess that it's also a way to kind of see what I, you know, the retweets and random tweets that I do, um, you know, be able to, to see, you know, what interests me if you want. So uh, what does the future of economics look like, according to you? That is a very difficult question nowadays. It's always a difficult one, but I think it's a very difficult one now. Um, why? Because I think, you know, we are, I don't know if we're at, at like a massive turning point, but lots of things are happening um, that, that are, I don't know if the word is new, but that are different. Uh, and I think hopefully will help a lot of people put in perspective, um, you know, what matters. Um, and I, I don't know, it's a very difficult question. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's just, I, I, I want to be optimistic and I think, you know, I, I think without sounding repetitive, um, I think there's a, lo a lot of, you know, people, especially young people, like, you know, like you and everyone are rethinking that is rethinking or trying to, you know, 
get out of the, of of the that box right that that is you know mainstream economics if you want uh so i have hope um because i think that group of people is pretty big and it's is everywhere uh so i'm really hopeful in that sense i do also think that you know we're in for a bumpy ride I could, you know, in terms of, of, of what's going to happen, you know, how we get out of this situation, COVID situation that we're in. So, so I'm hopeful for, for, because, you know, there's a critical mass of people that, that questions and wants to know more and wants to go beyond, beyond the textbooks, if you want. Uh, but it's, yeah, but in terms of kind of the everyday lives, I don't know what we're in for and it doesn't seem like it's going to be easy. So I'm not that much, that optimistic on that side, unfortunately. So final question, what is your advice for future economists? I guess that, it, you know, it goes towards, I know it, this is sounds like a very circular, um, interview in a way because I feel like you know there's certain topics I guess that you know that's what that's what I care about and and, and those are my views um, uh, you know it's trying to be be questioned and be critical and uh, don't take anything at face value and I'm just not talking about numbers here I'm talking about you know stuff that that the textbooks say and even the papers say that you are quite interested you know you're reading a paper that you think is really interesting Still, you know, read read into it with a with a skeptical mindset. Uh, question everything, as they say. I think that's that's the best advice. Amazing! Thank you so much for joining me today, Cecilia. This was Thank a wonderful you. conversation. Yeah, it was and great uh, talking to you. Have a great day. You too. Oh.